Hello, welcome to Not The BBC. So it's become commonplace and has been commonplace for a while to consider America a cosmopolitan project. It, you know, we've, we're told that America was always this universalist paradise and that so long as anyone, wherever they came from, bought into this critical idea of liberty, so long as they subscribed to the ethic, then they could become American. And, and that was the founding idea and that was ultimately the story and what played out and, and what made America what it became. And what it is today but you know these are notions that might be admirable it might be a nice idea but you know we have to consider whether they're true and eric kaufman's rise and fall of anglo-america you know which is a very well researched and thorough book really you know cast that into doubt and so i was very keen to get eric on to discuss this stuff because it is really critical these are challenging complex questions and you can't really have a mature and thorough, deep understanding of the situation today, or what is also ultimately um, sort of viable in politics, if you're not, you know, if you're not operating from, you know, from position of, you know, any sort of semblance of reality. So, you know, I brought Eric on to discuss it. We ultimately don't come to the same conclusions about what, you know, what to infer from the research he does in his book. Um, but I think you will see that the research stands alone and does a lot to contest the narrative and really helps shape my understanding of what America was and also for how it's changed and why it's changed in the why in in the way that it has. So anyway, I really hope you enjoy the conversation. I I feel it's a really important one. Eric, welcome to Not the BBC. Great to be here, Seb. Thanks for yeah, having me. Not at all. Thanks for coming on. You're you, know, you and a couple of other writers. I've been reading this year have significantly helped broaden my thinking and helped me understand the, the the situation we're in. So, yeah, I'm very glad to have you on. Um, do you want to start off by giving a brief introduction into who you are and, and the kind of work that you do? Yeah, so I'm a professor of politics at uh, Birkbeck University uh, of London. I um, I've long had an interest in the confluence of, of two forces. One is uh, population shifts and the other is national identity, including ethnic majority groups identity. And that's really where uh, my PhD, my master's and PhD at the London School of Economics uh, begins with looking at this question of the white Anglo-Protestant uh, dominant group in first in Canada for my master's thesis and then in the U.S. Uh, for my PhD, which then becomes my first book with some modification called The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America. Uh, and then I've sort of, well, I returned to that subject a little bit. I did an, a, a, an edited book that looked at different parts of the world called uh, Rethinking Ethnicity, which was about um, um, ethnic majorities and dominant minorities. Uh, and then I most recently uh, wrote the book White Shift, which is kind of picking up where the tail end of the rise and fall of America left off in the kind of early 2000s um, in a very different context. And, and sort of, again, looking at this whole question of ethnic majorities in decline due to population shifts and then the politics of that, which is mm. in our period very much defined by uh, populism and polarization. Yeah, I, I stumbled on you because of having found the work that you wrote in 2004, I believe, um, Rise and Fall of Anglo-America. And yeah, I think that there's sort of two reasons why I think it really captured my attention and why I think it's important. The first one 
is because, you know, it's just a critical part of um, Western history, you know, given the way that America exports everything to us. You know, these concepts are, are really important to, to understanding Western history. And, and they're just sort of left out. Like we're told that, you know, America is an idea. Um, mm. And that's sort of now... And that sort of now kind of you, you hear similar kind of things in England now, like to be British is to be it's to be liberal, tolerant and believe in democracy. And, you know, you can you can debate about these things, you know, as much as you like. But I think it's, it's important to understand that this was at least this wasn't always the case that, you know, back, you know, a few, few at least a couple of centuries ago in the US, people had a different conception of, of what that was, or at least some people um, and a dominant amount of people in the population had. Um, some different conception of what what that means. So I just think the fact that this we're not kind of taught about this is really challenging because they are difficult questions. Um, potentially, you know, and the stakes are very high. Um, in so you know, you cannot have a mature worldview if you just kind of put you know push stuff under the rug because it's not comfortable to talk about. So you know, that's the first one. Just in terms, I think it's a critical piece of our history to understand. And the second one is that it really helps shed light on the nature of the the change that we've seen you know people sort of look around us and we see that um you know jubilee weekend you had um in in the buckingham palace in the sort of concert you had the pride colors flying up um outside buckingham palace and you know every football match now is marked by the bending of the knee to black lives matter and you know these are very much sort of religious tenets um mm. and all around us we see that, you know there is some sort of there is a cultural revolution that is you know long past even being afoot it's kind of taken over taken over the west and so that le people haven't really had the tools to understand that right so some people kind of go oh it's a communist takeover it's sort of like lenin and and the sort of the sort of group of people that he was part of um they're sort of still kind of working away or some people point like a lot of people have um looked to the work of carol quigley and he sort of talked, and so that, and that's led to this notion that oh, it's still the elites who ruled um, the British Empire are still kind of, you know, kind of in charge of everything, and and people just don't really have the tools. And so, this book, you know, understanding the kind of scale of the demographic change and and how that kind of how that kind of transfers into change at the elite levels, the at the economic, cultural, political levels, and stuff like that, kind of really helped gave me a frame for understanding. In, in a bit more of a kind of a mature way, like why things look so different. So th these are these are why it sort of resonated with, with me so much and why I wanted to get you on. Um, so to start off, do you want to, I guess, talk a little bit about the, um, in terms of the settling of America and the, and the sort of early United States sort of around the time of the revolution, do you want to talk a little bit about the sort of demographics of the US and, and the notion of um, eth its ethno history as well? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a. Uh, thanks a lot for that, Seven. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at the uh, the United States in 1789, soon after independence, um, you know, in 1789, the free population, let's say the white population, was 98% uh, Protestant. 80% uh, of that group would have been of British ancestry. Um, and the remaining sort of 20%, mainly Dutch, German, Northern European, French. Um, so you really actually had a, a, you know, a, a relatively high degree of homogeneity. Now you did have the one fifth of the population that was uh, black, which was largely, not entirely, but largely 
um, in slavery in the southern states. Um, and you also had the Native American, uh, you know, a small uh, Native American population. But it's just worth saying that the notion of a kind of nation of immigrants from all parts of the world, in a way, was very misleading to describe the America of 1790. And that's that population composition really stems from the, the first waves of settlers, the Puritans who are largely from East Anglia um, and in the coastal south, uh, largely from around London, the greater London area. Um, and then the, the frontier, the sort of Allegheny Appalachian frontier was mainly Scotch-Irish people of, of either northern northern England, the Scottish borders, Scot uh, Northern Ireland. Um, and then so, so this is sort of the, 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 the basis over a period of, you know, from the arrival of the Puritans in 1620, let's say, to uh, 1790, it's 150 years. There's a book called uh, Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher that really talks about how these British origin folkways, regional groups sort of then shape regional cultures. Mm. So the Puritan East Anglia architecture and other traditions shapes New England's culture, for example. Um, and meanwhile, the Scotch-Irish, uh, North, North British Scotch-Irish element on the frontier very much shapes that culture, uh, the sort of Appalachian kind of hillbilly culture and all of that country music and all these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, so, so I think this is a very important, it's very important to recognize that there is a kind of ethnic core, just as there are in European nations in the United States yeah, and in at terms the time. Of, yeah. And in terms of this, um, this ethnic core, what was the sort of narrative that they had about, um, you know, what they, you know, what they were doing there, like as in what the, you know, what country they were building, what territory, what settlement they were building, what was the narratives and the mythologies that they had? Well, it, I mean, it is true that they were, a lot of them were uh, millenarian or religious oriented uh, rather than ethnic oriented, right? So they, they, mm. it is the case that they were fired by uh, religious beliefs, such as the Puritans, for example, uh, you know, uh, or later the First Great Awakening, dividing the sort of new lights and the old lights with their different interpretation of Protestantism. So you do get these sort of religious, these zealous religious movements, and that continues through into the early 19th century with the Second Great Awakening and the emergence mm. of all these new religious sects. But there was also a conception of the United States as a kind of uh, a beacon chosen by God in a way. Uh, initially, this was very covenantal, this notion of the people of Israel in the wilderness and, and creating a new society and all of those kind of somewhat futuristic uh, conceptions of territory, but there was, in addition to that, also uh, quite a strong Protestant element. It was very much conceived of as a Protestant nation, um, and that was integral uh, to the self-conception of the American settlers. Um, so it's very clear that that was seen as the American religion. Yeah, and in terms of, you know, because if, if we look, um, you know, today, let's say, um, nationalists they, they one of the issues that they have with christianity is the universalism um and that they think that sort of creates a conflict um in terms of the this dominant protestant religion that was that was around at the time what 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 was the position on um on kind of uh, i guess like race ethnicity that like the brotherhood of man how did did they sort of delineate boundaries at all 
Um, well, they did, of course, delineate boundaries, uh, you know, along racial lines, say, with, with the African-Americans, uh, but also along religious lines. Once you had significant Catholic immigration from Ireland in the 1840s, that became another quite important division in the northern states. Um, and that continues through to the early 20th century when you started getting, say, Southern and Eastern European Catholics and some mm. Jews. There was a very clear distinction between the Protestant Americans, majority, largely rural, and the uh, more urbanized um, uh, Catholic uh, immigrants. Um, so there were those distinctions that emerge later when you get the waves of non-Protestants coming into the country. That sort of throws into relief this implicit and hidden uh, Protestantism and uh, Anglo ancestry, which had been mentioned. I mean, if you look at the founding fathers like Jefferson, they had talked about the Americans as the descendants of the true Anglo-Saxons who had escaped the Norman yoke. The Normans being associated with the British monarchy and the aristocracy. And therefore, for Jefferson, you know, he talked about the Americans as descended from Saxon chiefs, Hengist and Horsa. Mm. And there were a number of other writers who were inspired by this Anglo-Saxonism in the late uh, 18th and yes. into the 19th century. So d did they kind of see it as um, they were sort of continuing the great tradition that the Norm yeah, that the Normans had sort of suffocated by taking over um, the, the Isles, you know, the, the British Isles, and they sort of thought we are actually the true, we, we're, we're carrying that torch forward for our forefathers, the, the, the sort of the, the beacon of liberty and stuff like that. Yeah, it was this this idea that the the ancient Anglo the old the Anglo Saxons that had this primitive form of liberty that had been kind mm. of extinguished by the Norman conquest. Now that that idea comes from from Britain and the Whigs, the Whig tradition in England. The Whigs in England identified with the Anglo Saxons, the Tories with the Normans. That divide was already there in in terms of these ideological myths. Um, and so the Americans took over that kind of Whig myth and just said, we are kind of the realization of this spirit. We're going to create a society in the image of that ancient liberty. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, this, this, and it was, it was made clear by Jefferson, for example, that it was the Anglo-Saxon heritage was not just political principles, but also genealogical descent and ancestry. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's an important qualification, and that comes across, too, in a lot of the 19th century American historians, the most prominent ones like Francis Parkman, George Bancroft, and, and, and others. Who, and Teddy Roosevelt, in his Winning of the West, uh, 1889, very much makes reference to the same narrative of, you know, talking about defeat of the Spanish Armada, well, the Anglo-Saxons kind of co coming to England, then defeating the Spanish Armada, then settling America, then... Uh, you know, settling the West. This was for him all part of the same story. Uh, and that was quite a common uh, idea in the 19th century in the US. Yeah, I mean, that alone, you know, just to, just to take into account the fact that the founding fathers and, and even as late as Roosevelt, after a lot of things have changed, that alone should be enough to really kind of alter people's worldview. I think that alone is, is pretty consequential, the fact that they did mention these things. I mean, it was completely, it was news to me, um, you know, completely. I, I, I did sort of subscribe to the, the notion that it was, you know, it was just some, some beacon of liberty that everyone was, was welcome to. And perhaps it wasn't, we can get it, we can talk about the double consciousness and the sort of right. conflict that that, that that brought up. But I think that's important. And the other thing, just to, just quickly sort of around this, I think to, to reinforce um, the fact that it was a reality is 
you know you talk about the, the late 19th century there are populist movements and 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 which are kind of tiring the wasp elite to the rural protestant masses and by and even as late as the 1920s you know immigration policies being shaped to protect a sort of western european um dominant ethnicity um yes yeah, so so yeah what you what you have is the arrival of significant catholic immigration from ireland in the 1840s and you then start to get a wave of these populist movements which in some ways are familiar if we think about what's happened in europe and, and the us to, in since 2014 so you had the american party known as the know nothing uh, party because of their secret handshakes uh and, and loyalty oaths um they basically form out of a series of movements from the 1840s to try and resist the Catholic migration. Uh, and a know-nothing president was considered not only a strong possibility, some considered it an inevitability um, in the 1850s. And it's only because of the emergence of the slavery issue, which divided the Northern and Southern states along sectarian lines in a way, pro and anti-slavery lines that broke up the energy behind this, as well as to some degree, the waning of Catholic migration from Ireland. Um, the, co these, the combination of these factors meant, uh, but, but really the fact that this is, was the most powerful third party movement in American history. I mean, that tells you something about some of the energy behind this kind of a populist movement. Mm. Um, and then we, of course, we have a the civil war, which is just, you know, the bloodiest conflict, you know, it's incredibly bloody. Um, and that sort of, these wars can some, come, sometimes have the effect in a breaking apart, you know, populist movements. Um, and, and then you have fewer Catholic immigrants. A lot of the immigration is now coming from Canada, which is mainly Anglo-Protestant and then uh, Northern Europe. Uh, but by the time we get into the 1890s, we're starting to see an increase in migration from Southern and Eastern Europe, particularly into the 1900s. Um, and then we see another upsurge in uh, anti-Catholic populist movements, uh, which culminates, for example, in the banning of alcohol, which was seen, not the banning, you could still consume alcohol, you just couldn't actually publicly sell it. And that, that was sort of a symbolic form of politics that was targeting uh, German, Irish, and, uh, and other Catholic immigrants who had congregated in saloons. Um, and this was very much a reaction from the Protestant rural majority. Uh, mm -hmm. In addition, you had the uh, 1924 immigration uh, law, which more or less said that immigrants entering the country must come from the same mix as already exists in the country. Uh, to put it crudely, the National Origins uh, Quota Act known as the Johnson Reed Act, uh, goes into place in 1924 and very dramatically, you know, it very dramatically changes the mix of people coming into the United States. Um, overnight, almost, it, it becomes predominantly Northwestern Euro European again. Mm. Um, and there are fixed quotas set aside for each country and the quota for, let's say, Italy would be extremely small. The quota for Britain would be, you know, half the total, for example. Um, and that's just an example then of what, what occurs. And that framework stays in place more or less until 1965. Mm. Um, and it's kind of a recognition, too, that, you know, even in 1965, when they were debating the removal, and they eventually did remove these quotas in favor of a colorblind system. 
the Democrats, uh, Bobby Kennedy and others, were all saying, well, this isn't going to change the ethnic mix in the country. So for them, that was an important thing to, to say in order Still to get this bill point. passed. That, and it's kind of a subtle recognition, despite this sort of universal nation talk, that there's an implicit tradition that involves an ethnic majority in the United States, which is kind of Anglo-Protestant. Mm. That sort of implicit tradition, it's not often stated explicitly, but it is certainly there implicitly. For example, even to mention that there are Italian Americans and Irish Americans and African Americans and so on, is more or less to suggest that there are all there is also a group called American unhyphenated. Yeah. Right. So by naming the the groups that are outside the ethnic majority, but not naming those that are uh, of the ethnic majority, you're essentially subtly indicating are, yeah. mm. that that there is a sort of a hidden uh, ethnic majority that is implicit in in the country, and and in a way helps define the country. Yeah, I mean, I was I was very interested to hear that you know as late as that. I mean, I, I, this is news to me now about you know Bobby Kennedy um, in the sixties, whenever it was. But you know, even when I heard nineteen twenty, the fact that that kind of legislation was being put through to reverse, um, you know, to reverse the kind of um, sort of more broad immigration that was happening. That that to me was was surprising. Um, so it is, yeah. So that's pretty fascinating. Now to kind of talk, yeah, you, you touched on it there, and this sort of. Um, the cosmopolitan rhetoric and liberal rhetoric. Um, can we sort of talk about how that evolves? Because, um, you know, it seems, I'm, I'm curious about the extent to which there's a conflict between the notion of, um, because the work of people like um, Kevin MacDonald, I mean, he points to the fact that sort of, uh, that liberalism and sort of individualism is something that you only really see kind of evolve out of sort of northwestern european cultures it says you don't really see it in other places and he provides some pretty interesting reasons for why that would be the case and and so you know the anglo-saxons definitely you know you speak of this um you know the liberty that was forged in the german forests and and this sort of um you know the sort of uh plucky saxon you know freedom loving saxon and stuff like that so it seems to me potentially was there conflict between this notion like liberty as an idea and liberty as and, and liberty is something that is inherent to um, to the Anglo-Saxon Protestants that came and settled to America. I mean, did that play into it? Or do they have any consciousness of that? I mean, how how yeah, just talk through um, I guess the conflict here and, and perhaps how the dialogue evolved and your, the, right. the concept of double consciousness that you bring up. Which yeah, I think is yeah, that's a very good point. So so there was always you know this universalist conception. Um, you know, you could always find people who were making the universalist pronouncement, mm. uh, and some of them were foreigners, like de Tocqueville and uh, Henry Saint Jean Crevecoeur. Uh, you know, who would say, or or even Tom Tom Paine. Um, you know, all of Europe, not just England, is the parent of America. Or um, I, I, you know, I've met somebody whose whose grandparents were of eight nations. You know, you have these people who talk about the U.S. as a sort of uh, international nation. When I say international nation, more of kind of universalist project, creating a new man, if you like. I mean, in their more enthusiastic moments, however, at the same, you could often take the same writer like Tocqueville, like Emerson, um, and you can see that they'll make very different statements, often around the same time. So 
Mm-hmm. Emerson, for example, said, uh, you know, the U.S. is the, um, I, 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 I'm trying to remember exactly his words, sort of like the asylum of nations, Cossacks, Polynesians, uh, you know, Africans, all these people were going into this pot and, and it was something new. Um, and about the same time, he sort of was also saying that, um, you know, that the Americans are descended uh, from in, from the people of England and uh, and represent a more exaggerated version of Englishness than England represents. So that's sort of Anglo-Saxonness, if you like, uh, and that yes, there are there are immigrants, but they're rapidly assimilated. Um, and he's also saying that you know uh, the more or less what he calls the Caucasians, but is sort of meaning the Anglo-Saxons because he says that. Um, they're more or less superior and then he lists a whole bunch of groups including the irish and a bunch of others as being you know lower than you know mm. so you have this what what you have are in the 19th century or, or in the late 18th century are a lot of writers who will simultaneously wax lyrical about the universalistic and utopian and at the same time wax lyrical about the sort of particularistic uh, at the same time, and the same thing's happening in Europe. You get, uh, I think it's Mazzini who talks about, you know, he founded Young Italy and Young Europe. Uh, or you get German nationalists who say, you know, the best German nationalism is about uh, going beyond nationhood. Mm. Uh, you know, they're, so they're kind of contradicting each other a lot. And these two yeah. sort of narratives are coexisting in the same person's mind, which is kind of what Emerson meant by the term double consciousness is keeping these two ideas in your mind at the same time. Mm. But of course they are in tension, they are in contradiction. And it's only in the 20th century that we see those contradictions coming into conflict and people having to pick a side in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it strikes me that it was, it must have been um, sort of an age of in, immense kind of optimism and utopianism in terms of like, in the European empires have been staggeringly successful. You've had this, these amazing advances in industrial technology. America was a stunning success. You know, to, you know, it's quite amazing what you know what it became in such a short space of time and stuff like that. So, and also, you know, people reach a stage of material prosperity when you start to kind of look for different things, right? You can't, you don't have this these kind of clear big um, enemies like sort of poverty and stuff like that to, to fight. So, I think. It seems to me that it must have been a product of that, and some of these writers in just in their more sort of like emotional utopian uh, moments, they're sort of making these these proclamations. But you know, they didn't they weren't necessarily always you know as thought through and and as as some people as you might take as you might think if you just took it as a soundbite as like this is where the state of America was at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is worth saying that you know if you try and say well, how do they ever reconcile these? to wildly opposing conceptions. You can sometimes see, um, for example, some thinkers who seem to believe that the, you know, this is at a time when heredity was not necessarily well understood. I mean, there were theories uh, like the inheritance of acquired characteristics, you know, that people could, could pass down characteristics acquired through the environment, the Lamarckian ideas. Um, so there's a whole lot of fluidity around the meaning of heredity, first of all. Um, and secondly, this was a period of massive European, particularly West European and British demographic expansion. You know, they had discovered 
sanitation and medicine and all of these things which enabled a, a reduction in infant mortality and so you had this big surge of population i think england exported 25 million people while doubling in size between wow. 1700 and 1900 you know just these these incredible this incredible population explosion and they're ex expanding settling uh, and i think there was this sense of kind of demographic inevitability and, and some of them really believed that the anglo-saxon heredity not genes because they didn't have those those that conception but they kind of believed it would just overwhelm uh, whatever it came into contact with so some of the americans who believed that they should conquer all of mexico in the mexican-american war thought well yeah we're just going to absorb them and, and they'll be transformed into uh you know into anglo-saxons i mean this this sort of notion of a kind of various absorptive but dominant kind of Anglo-Saxon almost gene. I mean, so you had these kind of some of these crazy ideas that were prominent. Interesting. Uh, but but you also had others who were who were saying more skeptical. Who were saying, well, no, actually, that's not how it works. We can't really conquer Mexico. Let's just take, you know, the land that has only one percent of the Mexicans on it, but contains, you know, whatever forty percent of of the territory, and not mm. not try and conquer this this country. So yeah, I mean. It is interesting, though, just to look at how people kind of try to square that circle. Yeah, no, and, and it's you know when you sort of and it's you know in hindsight, it's no surprise that things evolve as they do, right? That as um, as the country matures, as it becomes more prosperous, as more um, you know as it grows in its immigrant base grows first from um, first from I guess like Germany and Ireland and Scotland and you know as opposed to just being English at that point and then towards southern and eastern Europe but then you know um, and sort of all parts of the world it's it's kind of a, it, it seems pretty inevitable you know that the kind of change that we've seen or perhaps it wasn't but you certainly see where it's, you know where the roots were and so over you talk about you talk in the book sort of people like John Dewey John Dewey, uh, Dewey um, there's um, Felix Adler that you mentioned, there's um, Randolph Bourne, people like that. Do you want to sort of talk mm. a little about their influence and how things start to pick up, the sort of cosmopolitanism, the, the, the right. true universalism starts to really take hold? Yeah, yeah. So, so you move from the 19th century liberals, such as Emerson and Walt Whitman, who, who would have been quite Anglo-Saxonist, as well as being kind of cosmopolitan. Uh, as we move into the 20th century, each of those halves breaks apart. You can't really be into double consciousness anymore uh, because the, for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is just the emerge, the development of genetics and uh, study of heredity, which was still pseudoscientific in some ways, but had a more kind of a hereditarian approach and, and with eugenics and all of this to sort of this idea that you know you'd have this tremendous fluidity and genes would overwhelm other genes i mean some of these notions really went out and, and then what you start to say are the first genuinely unalloyed cosmopolitan movements i would argue uh which didn't have any hint of particularism or anglo-saxonism in them and the liberal progressive movement i think really is that movement for uh, for the United States. People like John Dewey and Jane Addams um, really subscribed to this notion that the U.S. was in a way this great experiment and each, you know, all peoples of the world would give and receive and they would create this completely new uh, compound. 
Um, so that that becomes there, and, and as Dewey says, neither Englandism nor New Englandism will define America. And and the, these are both um, wasps. Yes, am I right yes. in saying as well? Which is important. Nearly um, all point. of them are. Nearly all of them are. And um, so Dewey is from a New England. Almost all of them are from a New England background, a New England wasp background, since that is ma- mainly where the literary culture of America uh, came from, right up into the twentieth century. Um, and so, yeah, Dewey, they are also borrowing to some degree from what is initially reformed Judaist, reformed Jewish theology, which, which conceived of the Jews as um, a group that would lead other groups toward the truth, but then uh, would universalize themselves out of existence and disappear because they'd made their contribution. They kind of brought the world together in this new theology and they disappear. Hmm. Uh, once their job was done. Now, of course, that was deeply unpopular amongst most Jews to think that, hey, you guys are going to, hey, you've done a great job, and then you get to disappear. Um, I can so, imagine, yeah. <laughs> so, but, 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 but it's very influential amongst some of these WASP liberals. So, so Dewey largely takes that over and says, you know, actually, it's going to be the WASPs who are going to lead uh, the charge, who are going to lead humanity towards this cosmopolitanism you're, you're all following right you're all following right yeah. yes, we'll, we'll go first in, in completely destroying our yeah <laughs> right and they will uh, be the sort of teachers the the uh, the ones who will show the way to the lesser peoples uh into this great cosmopolitan kind of melting pot because they weren't against the melting pot really uh at the time um, and then once that job was done, they would have no more job to do and they would disappear, right? So, so that was the, a sort of wasp version of this reformed Judaism theology. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's sort of the first decade of the 20th century and a bunch of these just things called settlement houses where immigrants would go to uh, have cultural and educational services. And the workers were kind of wasp liberals who would sort of minister to the needs of these these groups and and within that environment you get the emergence the emergence of this idea of empathy for the immigrant for the non-wasp and then also later a critique of the uh, ethnic majority as as in some ways being uh domineering not being particularly nice to these groups so that uh, the beginnings if you like of a kind of protectiveness towards minorities and critique of majorities, but in a kind of milder way than develops, say, in our age. Um, And then we move on to Randolph Bourne and the the modernists. So, okay. So So just on on this quickly, um, you also mentioned the... um, you also mentioned it starts with the churches even before Hmm. that. And and one of the reasons that stuck out to me was that... um, I mean, this this also kind of breaks some of the narratives that we have, but... um, but one of the reasons, that, yeah, that stuck out to me is that, you know, a lot of people kind of, they put all this down to the Frankfurt School um, and they sort of say, oh, a lot of this, a lot of the wokeness and, and all these problems today started with with the Frankfurt School. Um, but, you know, you, you, you notice when reading the book, that, you know, a lot of these seeds were planted a lot earlier and, um, and, from, and from Anglo-Protestants, right? Not necessarily just from Jewish intellectuals. Yeah, yeah. This was, I mean, the Jewish... Uh, impact would have been non-existent at the time, you know, at this time, next to non-existent. This was the Jews would have been poor. They would have been in the, the lower East side in the, in the garment trades, and they weren't, weren't really having an impact on the, on the culture 
the mainstream where these big decisions and big narratives were forming. Uh, you know, they, they were at the fringes in a way, but not, not really at the mainstream. So, yeah, I mean, with the sort of liberal progressive movement, it is kind of an offshoot of a version of Protestantism, a sort of Victorian middle class. A lot of these settlement workers were university educated. That was very rare. So this was quite an elite movement. Mm. Uh, and it's also important, as you mentioned, to do, you know, the mainline Protestant denominations, the elite of those mainline Protestant denominations, Episcopalians and so on uh, in particular, uh, formed uh, the ecumenical movement, which initially was a movement to unify across denominations within Protestantism, but later becomes a movement to unify across Protestantism, Protestantism Catholicism, and, and Eastern Orthodoxy. So now, you know, when it was about unifying the Protestants together, it was very anti-Catholic. And it talked about the problems of immigration and the saloon. And then just, this would have been in sort of the early 1900s, like 1905, 1900 to 1905, it was still talking about those older issues. And then by, between sort of 1905 and 1910, it switches and it starts to adopt by 1910, the kind of liberal progressive narrative. Because these people all kind of were connected to each other within these sort of well-educated elite Protestant circles. So that kind of institutional elite Protestantism very quickly gravitates to the liberal progressive uh, melting pot nation of immigrants kind of narrative of, of, you know, people will lose their prejudice, world peace, we're going to model world peace amongst nations. And this sort of vision, the humanitarian Protestant vision, um, becomes dominant then in, in, not dominant, but in these sort of institutions that is sections of the uh, settlement movement, the liberal Protestant, uh, liberal progressive movement and the ecumenical movement. So that is kind of stage one, if you like, and they all oppose the 1924 uh, um, National Origins Act. They oppose the anti-Catholicism of the Ku Klux Klan, for example, in the 1920s, when the Klan had six million members and uh, a president and, you know, mayors, and, you know, so, so they were very much, you know, very much against uh, the kind of what, what the Americans called nativism, I guess I would call um, ethno-nationalism, if you like, Anglo-Protestant ethno-nationalism. Um, and so a lot of this kind of prefigures a little bit of what we call wokeness in the sense of protectiveness towards minority groups, as well as a certain critique of one's own ethnic majority. Yeah. But it was it was sort of the dial was maybe at three out of 10. It wasn't as opposed to 11. At 11. <laughs> but but then you get <clears throat> the turning of the dial from three up to, I would say, six occurs with the young intellectuals. And these would be the bohemian modernists. So a much more secular group, whereas the liberal progressives were still kind of Protestant and, and kind of liberal Protestant religious. The uh, modernists, uh, the left modernists in Greenwich Village, the young, the young intellectuals, Yes, they were pretty much all wasps. In fact, I can think of very few exceptions to that. People like Randolph Bourne and Hutchins Hapgood. There were a few who were not. Um, but their conception is, well, the problem here is that the wasp inheritance, you know, wasps are boring. They don't dance. They don't drink. They're not exciting. You know, there's some merit to that critique, by the no, way. I, I, but, I, I, I understand <laughs> what they found alluring about, you know, they're looking at the sort of Latin quarter of Paris and stuff like that and the bohemian lifestyle and they're, you know, stuffy, um, boring, uncultured, uh, you know, 
grandparents and parents and stuff right. like that. You kind of you can't understand the energy that they were tapping into. Yeah, and also, and at the same time, they were part of the movement of modern in modern art. So breaking mm. with traditions of you know obviously the Christian art, but even the landscape art and neoclassical. They were breaking with all of that. <clears throat> Um, exploring kind of, you know, I, I want things like atonal music and um, um, deep, more unstructured uh, art, what Daniel Bell would, would term you know, kind of an immediacy and novelty and an anti-traditionalism yeah. in, in art is something that a lot of the young intellectuals experimented with, you know, taking drugs, um, seeing jazz in Harlem, all of those things, and, and they sort of very much lionized exotic cultures, you know, the Greeks, the, the Jews, the African-Americans, uh, all of these different cultures were seen as, you know, interesting, expressive, spiritual in some way that, that the, the Anglo-Protestant was, was not very expressive. Okay, so that is kind of behind this modernist movement. And then you hear uh, Bourne in his art, uh, essay, Transnational America, essentially saying that, you know, WASP Americans should more or less slough off their inheritance and become of the cosmopolitan mind uh, to try to find the cosmopolitan note, as he say. So basically repudiate your Anglo-Protestant ethnicity to be a cosmopolitan, but minorities, um, you, you must retain your, your ethnicity. Don't become a cultural half-breed uh, who's sort of assimilated into Anglo culture while being something else. Um, and so he wants minorities to retain their ethnicity and uh, to be remain um, in the traditions of their ancestors and attached to their ancestors. That's really fascinating. Isn't yeah. it? It's almost like a, a nod to the fact that it's an yeah, implication that he understands on some level, it's a source of their strength to some degree, right? The fact that he's keen for them to hold, hold on to it. Yeah. And, and he is sort of, but what's, what's striking there is the asymmetry, right? Ethnicity mm. is great when it's born by minorities and it's terrible when it's born by majorities. And that I think is very important for understanding where we are today, because we live in the shadow of this template, which says ethnicity for majorities is a taboo. It's awful. Now it wasn't that Bourne was pushing this as a taboo whiteness as a sin. He hadn't got there yet, but it was more that whiteness is boring and it's got nothing to offer the world and not whiteness, but waspness, let's say, Uh, whereas all the other groups are interesting and and aren't they wonderful? Let's, let's celebrate them. So that is very much kind of setting the template within which we now live. It's just not as uh, moralistic as it later becomes. But yeah, you really see the roots of the sort of um, New York Times intelligentsia, you know, that and the sort of liberal America um, that sort of that sort of dominates. So you really see the seeds of it in, in, in all, throughout all this time, don't you? Um, yes, you, yeah, you do. And and and, but initially, it's this sort of modernist mm. uh, critique, which is that these people are boring and unexciting. And it's only when we get into the nineteen sixties, I think. Well. In the 1930s, some of the New York intellectuals are sort of saying that they're sort of critiquing art movements like the regionalist movement, which was American scene art. Uh, People like uh, Grant Wood and um, Thomas Hart Benton and some of these people who are, you know, the art that you see on a lot of murals in FDR, 1930s America, uh, in public buildings, uh, you know, which is influenced by the American history and the landscape. And this is being criticized for being kind of Nazi-like. 
by the late 30s. So you're starting to get kind of a moralistic critique creeping in in the non-communist left by the late 30s, but it doesn't really take, it doesn't really flower, I think, until the 1960s when you get um, all of a sudden, you know, someone like a Susan Sontag saying, you know, whiteness is, a, you know, something like white people are, are a cancer or something like that, you know, by, by the 60s, you get that kind of rhetoric. But I think that's building on this earlier critique that goes back to Bourne or H.L. Mencken, who talks about the Anglo-Protestants as, as having this ridiculous religion and being worried about being bested by other groups. And yeah. um, <laughs> he, he, so, was a, he was a German as well, wasn't he? Yeah, so, he mean, was. Yeah. In some ways, these things that, you know, uh, you mentioned that the Anglis, Anglicization of surnames and the integration into the anglo ethnic core was quite successful early on but in some ways as as the country evolves it's it's kind of you know you see it's you know it's not surprising that these these ties start to weaken in people who, who weren't you know from sort of proper old anglo british stock but yeah i also find it um i mentioned the, the work of kevin mcdonald's but this notion that you know northern northwestern europeans are particularly susceptible to or are particularly you know think of themselves much more as individuals than other groups they don't have the same sort of collective collectivist mentality um as let's say east asians and 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 people you know he mentions that people who grew up around rivers it's just the kind of the sort of way that 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 led to um their development like evolutionary sort of changed the imperatives and and so i to me that made it a lot it, it sort of all this made perfect sense having read um he's, he's got a book called individualism and the western liberal tradition and make this your book made a lot of sense having read that understanding where the sorts of words of people like Randolph Bourne, where, where that kind of instinct comes from and why it kind of did manifest itself. So um, sort of so thoroughly in, in, in wasp in people from wasp backgrounds um, just to kind of, you, you started touching on later on in the 20th century century. So do you just want to now go on and talk a little bit about the churn that starts happening? So at this stage, you know, you mentioned that there's more Catholic and Jewish immigration, but this is a lot. A lot of this is in the cities and stuff like that. But you mentioned that over the, you know, particularly after the Second World War, um, things really start changing. When you look at the sort of cultural, political, and economic elites, um, mm. you know, which used to be, you know, utterly dominated by people from WASP backgrounds, that that all really starts to change. Yeah, it does change. You know, as you get upward mobility of Catholic and Jewish, uh, you know immigrants, uh, you start to see some movement into the elite, although I think I would argue that that's pretty limited for a very long time, that that actually the real breakthrough of these groups into the elite doesn't really happen until the sort of 60, really until the 70s. I mean, it's it's quite late. Mm. The elite is heavily was right through till that period. Um, you know, the percentage, so in the Eastern seaboard cities um you know these are you know wasps are a minority a small minority in all of, in most of these cities by uh, certainly by the early 20th century and so you start to see the you know first irish mayors in places like boston new york or chicago um and occasionally you know mayors of other backgrounds and eventually italian mayors and 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 then eventually uh, black mayors, for example. Uh, so it's in these urban areas that you you see the, the minority groups uh, achieving political power. 
Um, but I think that's much less in evidence at higher levels of geography, even at the state level. New York State, for example, there was then a clash between the New York City area and upstate, which remained more WASPy. Uh, and that divide persists to today. Um, but certainly at the national level, you know, mm -hmm. I think FDR is famous for telling a Catholic, an Irish Catholic in his uh, brain trust, you know, look, uh, Leo, this is a Protestant country. Um, you, know, you know, in other words, you know, you can have a voice, but know your place was still kind of a message that the FDR was, was saying, you know, that, um, and I think that sense of um, WASP dominance that persists for a long time. So I don't think the, uh, you know, the ethnic minorities and their representatives, because there was also uh, a certain amount of gerrymandering. So the urban area districts uh, punched below their weight electorally. Mm -hmm. Uh, as well. I mean, this is right into the 1960s. So the rural areas were kind of overrepresented. Plus, you add into that the obviously the American uh, system of the Electoral College plus the Senate. Rural areas are have more power in a way. It's not uh, it's not exactly one person, one vote in terms of power. Um, and so I don't um, this is why in my book, I, I actually don't think the minority uh, groups such as Italian, Jew, uh, or, or even African-American, that they really have a lot of clout. I think they have a little bit of power, but the main thrust, the main reforming thrust is internal to the Anglos. Uh, and it's coming out of that kind of Anglo liberal pluralism, which is, these are ideological shifts. Mm. Uh, now, of course, those, those, pluralist Anglos are sort of sympathetic to the plight of minorities. So it's not as though the minorities have no influence, but they're influencing kind of indirectly through the, the sensibilities of, of the WASP liberals rather than directly through rather being power. in positions of power. Although um, you speak about the people like, I think it's Randolph Bourne. I mean, these people, they were quite influenced by, um, by the sort of Jewish reform movement, weren't they? So in terms of this sort of, and, you, and in on university campuses, wasn't there a lot more of a Jewish presence as well? So is there some, in term, even though they weren't in sort of positions of power at this stage, in terms of that side of things, in terms of like intelligentsia, was, was there not, can you not speak to some, to the role of Jewish influence in, in kind of furthering this along? Well, I mean, I think, I think there are, there are a set of ideas that are out there and, you know, so Felix Adler, for example, German Jewish reform, uh, Jewish turned secular intellectual. I mean, they have some interchange with their Anglo-Protestant counterparts in the Free Religious Association in the late 19th century. So there's sort of some lines of of intellectual influence, but I still would say that 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 you know, if you look at the liberal progressives, you know, who's inspiring the liberal progressives? You know, they're inspired by certain versions of Christianity there, there, uh, I wouldn't say that anything Jewish is inspiring the liberal progressives. I mean, it's, it's, I just can't, you know, there simply weren't any Jews to speak of who were, who were coming up with, I mean, maybe in a distant way, Felix Adler's ideas having some impact, but the main thrust of this comes out of this humanitarian Victorian, uh, mindset, which is linked to liberal Protestantism. So I don't think it's particularly influential there. Now, in, in the case of the modernists, the, the young intellectuals, um, there's there's a figure called Horace Callan, who has this notion of, of, uh, of an America of, inter of colonies, essentially of 
different ethnic groups coming together in this kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's in a way the world in miniature. Um, so Callan comes around at about the same time as Bourne, and there is some cross-fertilization between these two. However, the difference between the two is that Callan's view is, well, we're going to have all these groups and they're all going to be attached. Men cannot change their grandfathers, but he includes the Anglo-Protestants as a group that should have its ethnicity and its be, you know, that they should they should be attached to the traditions of their grandfathers. And and that's, I suppose, a more consistent um, mm. view of the world. So it's at least saying, well, all ethnic groups should behave in a similar way. I mean, yeah. he happens to be saying they should all preserve their tradition. Whereas Bourne, I think, because he's drawing on, I mean, he sort of makes what I consider to be a much more fundamental move, which is is the asymmetrical approach, which is yeah. that the wasps should, in fact, repudiate their traditions while the other groups should remain. So they, he keeps part of Caelan, but he junks the part that says the Anglo-Protestants should retain their traditions too. So that asymmetry uh, is, is important. And I think that comes out of a, the liberal progressive thrust, which is also a kind of repudiation of, of the wasp tradition. So mm. Bourne is, is in a way taking that culture of repudiation from the liberal progressives and blending it with some of what Callan is talking about. So yeah, I don't think that uh, the Jewish influence is there yet. Now, Jews, of course, were starting to go to university in larger numbers in the 30s in certain places. They were kept out by quotas of, of some of the Ivy League, uh, but, but they were strong in City College and some of these other more immigrant-dominated uh, institutions. They start to have an influence maybe in the late 30s. People like, um, you know, the New York intellectuals, um, Philip Rav and a number of others are, are starting to become influential to, to some degree, although, again, it's very tricky to trace the where this goes, their their philosophy was very much cosmopolitanism and modernism. Mm. Um, but in a way, they were building on the, the young intellectual tradition as, that was already well-established and the pluralist tradition was already well-established. So I don't yeah. see them as as formative as as some would have it. Fair enough, yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I mentioned if you look as, as far back as the, the sort of um, Protestant church, the ecumenical church and stuff mm -hmm. like that it has its seeds you know as far back then it's just interesting you know trying to map out how this stuff starts accelerating and stuff like that and I, you know the frankfurt school i don't think they came to the u.s until after until like the 50s or something so yeah um but so what point do kath to kennedy becoming the first catholic president president that's got to be quite a big milestone in terms of so what point do catholics jews greeks um you know all sorts of other just a sort of wasp majority in is it by the 80s sort of at what point does a real um churn start to so yeah you see the first catholic president in 1960 which was a big deal actually and, and many people didn't vote for kennedy because he was catholic while other catholics voted for him just because he was catholic um, by the 70s we're starting to see an erosion of that uh of that divide so there's a lot more intermarriage between protestant and catholic and jew in as we move into the 70s and 80s more CEOs of companies, um, elite bureaucrats. So the, the real breakthrough is happening in the sort of between the 60s and the 80s. Uh, the breaking of the barriers between Protestant, Catholic, and Jew is happening then. The intermarriage moving to the same neighborhoods, the breaking up of the old ethnic 
neighborhoods is, is, is occurring uh, at the time. You know, these WASP neighborhoods like the Main Line in Philadelphia would be an example, or uh, Back Bay, Beacon Hill in Boston, and these sort of lose their monolithically WASP character mm. uh, in this period. And similarly with the, you know, the Italian-American, you know, Bensonhurst, maybe Bensonhurst lasts longer and, and South Boston lasts longer, but a, a lot of these neighborhoods start to break up and no longer are, are mono-ethnic. Um, and then you see also the, the ethnicity, you know, by the time John Kerry, who's a Catholic, is running, you know, being a Catholic is no longer an issue. Uh, you know, the fact he's a Catholic, the fact Biden is a Catholic, I mean, none of that matters anymore. Yeah. It happens quite quickly, really, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's quite interesting. Um, and, and really, the, the, the dominant group shifts from essentially being this Anglo-Protestant connected to the colonial settlers. Uh, that changes and it just becomes this white uh, group, which can include Catholics, Jews, Protestants, and it's defined primarily by popular culture, uh, uh, cultural forms that are linked um, to, to the whites. So movies, music, uh, perhaps some consumer products. Um, in terms of historical narratives, you know, there's the, na there's the nation of immigrants narrative, which becomes dominant yeah. increasingly from the 50s, even from the 50s. But as we move into the 50s and 60s, the school textbooks are changing. And it's all about the Statue of Liberty and the welcoming immigrants to the shore. And, and the narrative is beginning to change. And that's partly due to the pressure from uh, liberal progressives in the teachers unions, the National Education Association, the, the, the textbook reforms, the new textbooks that are coming out are are pushing much more of this nation of immigrants, immigrant contribution narrative. Uh, whereas prior to that, up until the 50s, the textbooks had been quite different, talked about our colonial stock and uh, saying, you know, immigrants from Italy and whatever, uh, are they making a contribution? Are they not? There's good opinions on both sides of the quest. You know, this is sort of what was taught to school kids. Uh, yeah. And so there's this change in the the historical text in the official pronouncements, uh, and it all really starts to shift very rapidly in the 60s. Starting in the 50s, there are definitely important precursors, but uh, it's really in the 60s that things rapidly shift. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, we get the whole uh, cultural revolution of that period. Yeah, this has its um, it has an interesting corollary. Um, this the notion of sort of wasp churn with the the managerial revolution. Um, which is um but james burnham wrote about it and um sam francis also spoke about it but you know they speak about how um basically at, during the 20th century as as sort of organizations as capitalism became much more mass in scale um and more technical that the old bourgeoisie the old sort of um these people became far less powerful and so i imagine the old bourgeois small business owner class um small capitalism like mom and pop capitalism and stuff like that which used to be a big part of the Amer you know dominant part of the american social structure which had right. um, a lot of was much more nationalist um that sort of started to erode i mean these people still to some extent held a lot of the wealth but in terms of the people in positions of authority um it became much more about who went through who had the technical expertise so who went through the right universities and stuff who could like who could steer a massive global corporation, a media company, a political party and stuff like that. And so the sort of um the sort of nepotistic element of of America 
um, in, in sort of elite positions became less dominant um, as as the, this new type of um, ruling class emerged. And so I found there was a very, yeah, I think there's an interesting parallel there and it kind of helps helped me help yeah provide a lot more depth to kind of my picture for what's um for what's gone on um yeah 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 i mean i think that that i mean if you read uh c wright mills uh, in in the late 50s you know or even digby balsall his book the protestant establishment in 1963 you know they're both saying that the top of the military uh, this you know the leading uh, economic elite the leading uh, religious and political elite that they're all uniformly Protestant and wasp. Um, <clears throat> it was really the world of madmen in, you know, you know, the show Mad Men. I mean, that was really, you know, all the, the law firms, the so-called white shoe law firms in New York and advertising firms. Um, there really was a kind of a, a, a segregation uh, mm. and, and that world suddenly unravels very quickly in the, yeah. in the 60s. Um, and then very quickly it's changed. <clears throat> it's gone. And, it, and, and that's, um, uh, I, I don't know that I'm less of a believer in the kind of techno-economic arguments for this. Now, of course, techno-economic things are important in spreading ideas, but I think you already had an elite high culture that would had shifted towards mm. the narratives of the young intellectuals, the sort of pluralist, modernist, culture of repudiation was already well entrenched in the arts and letters. Um, and the universities just give it oxygen and allow it to take off and spread to a much larger group of people, as perhaps does the centralization of the television media. TV, of course, explodes in the 60s as well. Um, centralized in you know, Los Angeles, Washington, and New York become the key centers uh, for this new sort of mass culture um you know the universities are playing their part so all of these cylinders are firing and spreading uh the left modernist ethos um at the time uh people referred to the the, the managerial class that you talk about as the new class hmm. daniel bell and and um a number of other uh, analysts were talking about how essentially the bohemian values coming out of the you know, if we go back to the young intellectuals, the New York intellectuals, the beats, the hippies, those sorts of bohemian kind of modernist values then are transmitted to this knowledge class, the, the new class of knowledge workers, as, as Bell would describe it, and Lionel Trilling would describe it, um, are absorbing their fashions from the bohemian innovators. And yeah. so you'll have the Black Panthers featured in Vanity Fair magazine in the late 60s, this whole radical chic, all of this is is part of this transmission belt from the kind of radical left modernist hippie culture into the kind of uh, knowledge workers who are kind of on one, on the one hand, they are leading very sort of ordered lives, they've got professional jobs, but on the other hand, their identities are are shaped a lot by this bohemian culture. And so that is the new class, really, university educated, urban, um, that forms then the basis for the new society. Yeah, this is sort of what, um, this is sort of Curtis Yarvin's Cathedral. Um, you know, he talks about the role of, you know, like the fashionable people through the universities, they start, they inherit these these more liberal cosmopolitan traits. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, a lot of this, all this just speaks of sort of, of cycles. The fact that it does have its roots in a lot of anger, you know, Protestant thought and stuff like that, that the, you know, that 
there was such stunning success. The you know the Anglo-Saxon, the European peoples had had such stunning success. They got richer than they could ever imagined, um, and you know eventually you start getting you start getting sort of tired, and you start looking for you you start looking for deeper moral um, asking deeper moral questions. You start looking for you know for something different and stuff like that. And so you just start to question yourself. You start to look. You start to care a lot more about people from other backgrounds and stuff like that. And so uh, you know a lot of this does. Um, to me, I'd wait to sort of the thinking of people like Oswald Spengler, who, who really does think of things in, like, you know, each civilization has a cycle. Um, and yeah, I think that that's something that definitely comes out of it for me. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of in some ways less of a, uh, less into these meta theories, mm. uh, unless I could sort of see how they can be falsified in, in terms of evidence. And, you know, so I don't know is the answer. I mean, it's certainly plausible to me that there are these cycles, right. Of, of rise and fall, but I do think there's something, you know, if you take modernism, for example, that is a sort of European wide uh, art movement. Now, of course, Europe has almost no immigration uh, at this time. I mean, very limited migration, you know, one or 2% of West European countries populations are in the early 20th century are people born in other countries. It's very limited. So, but, but you have this modernist cultural movement, again, repudiating the classical, the religious tradition, uh, but it doesn't have that kind of multicultural, anti-dominant ethnic thrust yet in Europe, because there isn't the material to work with the way there is in, in America. Uh, and that's why America is, is, in a way, a better model for understanding what's happening today in Europe, because they had this experience with diversity that material was there. Uh, for the the modernists to work with to try and reimagine the country, um, and and so so they were doing that. But I do think the 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 whole thrust of modernism, the repudiation of tradition, you know, that's a very old thing. It sort of goes back to the early 1900s. And, and Don, Daniel Bell's book, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, is I think the best treatment of this phenomenon. It's amazingly ignored in academia, but I think it's hugely important uh, in shaping the sensibility of elites. And we're, we're living in the shadow now. This ideology has been with us now for, what, 120 years. Now, the difference is that the, the, the difference is that it's the left side. So the ideology I call left modernism and Yang would call the successor ideology, but it is a fusion of um, leftism, socialism with uh, aspects of, of liberalism and modernism. It's like taking out, I always say it's like taking out the class cartridge from the uh, socialist console and sticking in the identity cartridges. Mm. And the identity stuff was a concern of liberalism, not socialism. I mean, the socialists, thought that worrying about Negro rights was somehow bourgeois and, you know, what do these people have to contribute to the revolution? They're going to, the more people we get from Southern and Eastern Europe, the less likely we're going to have the socialist revolution because they're more backward and we need people to become, uh, get to the advanced frontier before they're going to be able to, to, to make revolution. So that, that was the outlook of um, the, the, the socialists. And so it's this fusion really of, the concerns of the liberals with women's rights, black rights, and later gay rights, you know, those concerns were liberal concerns for equal treatment. Though taking their concern with identity, plugging that into the socialist victim oppressor framework, that really doesn't happen, I, I would say, until the 60s. And people like Marcuse, and influenced by European currents like third worldism, uh, you know, these Maoist versions of Marxism, and, and, and as well later, 
the linguistic turn through postmodernism, all of this, those things are layered in on top. And we're then developing. I still think the ideology is, co is, is continuous with that left modernism of the 1910s. But the 1910s left modernism put a little bit of emphasis on inequality, but a lot more emphasis on liberation, let's call it, cultural mm. liberation. Um, whereas by the time we get into the 60s, the difference I see is that the sort of cultural liberation stuff starts to take a back seat to minority power or, or, or a victim oppressor narratives around um, minority harm and around uh, maintaining structures of oppression and all of this sort of stuff grows out of, you know, Marcuse and, but also a lot of the kind of radical movements, the Black Panthers and, and the women's, the feminist movements and all of these sorts of things which inform this radical, this radical sensibility, um, which has also got links to the earlier radicalism going back to, to Bourne, which was, mm. was rebelling against tradition, rebelling against the establishment. So there are continuities, but there's also a difference. Um, but I think the origins of our current of wokeness, for example, which is about the sacralization of, of historically marginalized groups, that's beginning in the late 60s with this new form of new left cultural radicalism. Okay, so um, we... We haven't got that long, so I just kind of thought this would be a good juncture to wrap up. So you mentioned, um, you know, sort of the techno-economic, some of these more like, these more abstract um, things don't, sort of don't um, convince you that much. In terms of, and this might, um, this might sort of come into some of your thinking with uh, on white majorities and, and white shift, or perhaps it doesn't, but just kind of interesting yeah. to your concluding thoughts. You know, what is tangible? And what has what is seems evident to me is just the nature of demographic change and the nature of change within the elite that has has ultimately happened now in terms of people in, in key positions and stuff like that. So, um, what do you do? You yeah. What do you view? Um, do you view that as like what role do demographic majorities and and does demographic change play in in sort of cultural change? Because to me, you know, one inference I get from the book is that it's it's it, it's kind of all, it's all important, right? And that that is when we see it, it makes the scale of the radical revolution that we've had today, like quite obvious, like quite inevitable. Like if you completely change the, the dominant ethnic group of a, um, and the sort of sense, the narrative that it has about itself in any given country, then you, it's akin to a revolution. Everything is going to change. So what are your comments on that? And yeah, I mean, wrap up how, yeah. how you'd like, but I thought it's yeah. a juncture to talk about where you're going next with your work. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're right that there, there's that confluence of the ideological, the demographic uh, and the political. But, um, I put a lot of emphasis on the ideological. So if you imagine that no immigrants, for whatever reason, wanted to come to America or a Western country, I don't think it would ha may have made much difference in the sense that instead of talking about multiculturalism, the conversation would all be about uh, whiteness and the oppression of black bodies, for example, or indigenous people or uh, gays and lesbians or whatever it would be. I mean, you, you, in a way, the ideology would find material to work with. Yeah, it's still, uh, you can see how it definitely still could have gone very strongly down the LGBT path. If, if you know, everyone could have been, a, it could have been a complete wasp majority still, but they're right. wild right. on the LGBT. Yeah, and, and, and heavily into indigenous, for example, like Canada, which has gone crazy on the indigenous stuff. Uh, the US has gone 
crazy on the sort of African-American stuff. You know, I think it, it is just whether or not you had the immigration with the sort of non-white, non-black diversity, uh, it just means that you would have lost that strand, which is to do with multiculturalism and diversity. As Well, diversity you might still have, um, but it would be defined somewhat differently. Um, no, I think the significance of the demography is much more with regard to the uh, the ethnic change, which tends to stimulate populism and polarization. But I think in terms of the ideas, um, the ideas will, of course, be influenced with the material they have to work with. So if they've got diversity, immigrant diversity to work with, they'll try and, you know, come in with diversity, multiculturalism, we're always been a nation of immigrants and, and, and so on. Um, if they don't have that, they'll just go to the indigenous uh, minorities instead. Um, so I don't think it is, it is the, the central, the reason for the ideology is not the demography. The demography didn't cause the ideology. However, there is an interaction between the two. I think I tend it's to believe- a symptom. It's almost a symptom, the change in demography. Oh. Yeah, exactly. So if the ideology had been less liberal, you wouldn't have had as much change in demography. That's absolutely right. Um, I also think that the fact that these kind of left modernist uh, narratives have displaced the national narratives for a lot of elite, let's say Americans, that they're more attached to the artist hero myth of the avant-garde, them being in the avant-garde. That is the kind of self-image which which gets them through life and gets them up in the morning uh no and and the symbols that are associated with that could be modern art but it could be you know a black lives matter symbol it could be a sort of lgbt flag or whatever uh, that those sorts of symbols are are much more meaningful um mm. or the hipster lifestyle whatever uh, these sort of left modernist lifestyle enclaves have displaced for them i think their ethnic majority identity and traditional religious national identity um, and they're trying to redefine countries on the basis of their adherence to left modernism. So the left modernist religion, uh, what McWhorter would call the religion of anti-racism, but anti-racism is the highest value, but below that, of course, you have anti-sexism and anti-transphobia and homophobia and all these other things. But that kind of, uh, that woke religion is in some way they're trying to redefine the country as being uh, a missionary nation on behalf of woke ideology. And these countries are competing. Canada is probably in the lead uh, in terms of Trudeau and his attempt to redefine Canada as a woke nation uh, is probably, you know, more more in advance of, let's say, New Zealand, uh, you know, or compared to Britain, compared to the United States. Um, and, and I guess I see this as the unfolding of the logic of these ideologies. And so each new generation has to take take it up another level, has to sort of developed okay we haven't done trans yet so we're going to do trans yeah uh, there has to be a sense that you're innovating in order yeah. to keep it fresh and vital if you just say no we're just going to talk about what the last generation of, of radicals talked about and we're just going to do it the same way they did it the sense is that wouldn't inspire as much you know you said so, so I, I tend to think these ideologies tend to have a, it's like a computer program uh, whose logic is unfolding over time and we're living through the logic of left modernism unfolding to its logical conclusion uh and, and now of course there are points of tension between the modernist stuff and the left stuff so one of those would be around pedophilia and pornography for example and um uh you know sex work you know some of those things you see very interesting tensions between the kind of liberation impulse of 
uh, the modernists, uh, uh, people like Michel Foucault, who, who were pro-pedophilia, and the people who said, no, we got to protect the vulnerable children or, or pornography, right? You know, and, and those are quite interesting. Those are the points of tension, but there's a lot of points where they're united against what they would see as a dominant patriarchal white supremacist, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, yeah, so I, I put a lot more emphasis on culture as its own driver. It doesn't need necessarily the new technological innovations. I mean, I'm not, I, I have no doubt that social media made it easier for cancel culture flash mobs to take place and to scale up, you know, the universities help scale these the things scale up. things is definitely, yeah, yeah. I'd say it's quantitative rather than qualitative in terms of the impact of technology. Yeah. Makes sense. So, so um, you have a couple of uh, appearances coming up talking about your, your book white shift. So I, I would, I recommend people keep an eye out for those. And do you want to just quickly talk about what well, I mean, just um, say where people can find more about you and maybe point them to white shift or whatever it is else that you, yeah, well, yeah, my book, uh, White Shift, which is uh, essentially about a lot of these issues, you know, the populist response post-2014 uh, in light of uh, the decline of ethnic majority groups, the role of left modernism uh, in this as well. Um, so that that book is available. It's, uh, you, if you go to either, you could Google White Shift. Uh, it, we chose a word that probably wouldn't actually exist uh, in many places. So I'm trying to think if you put white shift, there is some sort of a dress with just like a white shift dress or something that might pop up, but you should be able to find it in, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and then I'm, my website is www.snapssneps.net. Uh, and there you'll find links to all my talks and articles and papers as well as the book. Okay, well, I'll put all these um, links in the Oh, I should say I'm on social media case. as well. Uh, on Twitter at, at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Perfect. Well, Eric, I, I really, really enjoyed that chat. And like I said, I really enjoyed um, kind of reading through your work. So um, thank you very much for coming on. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Seb. Thank you for listening to that. If you enjoyed the way that I think about these issues, then you might enjoy Pith Weekly. So Pith Weekly is my blog, which I email out every Saturday morning, uh, somewhere where I share my latest thinking on metapolitics. And I also share some highlights of what I've read. I'm always digging through some really critical texts uh, in the area. Um, and it's it's something which is um, the center point for what I'm doing. Uh, you know, the reality is we don't really know what's going to happen and what platforms people are going to be kicked off of over the next few months, whether YouTube, Twitter, whether Gab's going to take off, but that will always be there. My email will always be there. I will always be sending my my best thoughts out and my best learnings out every Saturday morning. So I really hope some of you subscribe. You can find the link in the description. Um, and it'd be great to, to have you as part of my community, as a node in my network. Um, so thanks again.